do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey all weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and hopefully my guest today may be witness to biblical prophecy come true. And there shall be destruction and darkness come upon creation, and the beast shall reign over the earth. Welcome, Eric McNaughton. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a bit scared now after that introduction. Don't look out my window and see some giant creatures. I, I, I was going to say, don't be scared. I don't bite, but I can't guarantee that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> um, how you doing? How you doing? How you been? Are you busy? Very, very busy. Um, as you know, I work as a, as a tour guide, and this is just non-stop at the moment. So um, but it's good, Tom, when he's... So, um, and then in, I've got like four more tours and then I have four months off to catch up with all the movies I've bought and all the books I haven't read and, you know, the usual things. So, but yeah, life is good. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a never ending nightmare, quite literally uh, <laughs> in, yes. in terms of getting over. Yeah, I, I, I'm the same, you know, just, uh, constantly reading sort of film and film related books and, and other stuff as well and ghost stories and stuff like that as well but yeah the films uh it's never ending isn't it with the films you know yeah people just keep releasing box sets constantly yeah. it's annoying <laughs> well i i mean yeah I, i'm a big advocate of like you know 21st century i think there's a lot of really good 21st century films horror films especially um but you know, you, you could spend the next 20 years just investigating 20th century. Uh, yeah, I, and you'd never run out of films, would you? It's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know. Um, so, Eric, um, I know you, as, as a lot of other people will know you, from um, fantastic long-running horror magazine, We Belong Dead. So do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, actually, um, we've we celebrated our thirtieth anniversary last year. Um, so I, it was launched as a fanzine back in the nineties. I was uh, living in Nottingham at the time, and there was very little in the way of classic horror, which is what I kind of grew up with, with as a teenager. And you know, there was Fangoria and Gozone and all this kind of stuff, but very little classic stuff. Um, Whereas in the 70s, you were inundated with classic horror books and magazines. So I thought, well, I'll do my own fanzine. And uh, that's how it started. I mean, I look back on those original issues now, and they're very amateurish. You know, it literally was pair of scissors, some glue, typewriter kind of thing. And it amazes me sometimes people send me links to eBay where you can get issue number two for like $300. It's, it's insane, you know. Um, I have one copy of everything, but, you know, I, they're simply not worth that, to be honest. They're very, very amateurish. And so I did, um, it got better. You know, I, at the time I was working as a printer, so um, I could use the facilities of the place I worked. And then um, we went up to issue number eight. 
and then we stopped uh, mainly because I I went you know I went gallivanting off down to uh, South America, traveling there, and then I moved to Dublin, and I moved to Paris for ten years, and but the interest was always there, and the love was always there, and then um, relaunched again with issue number eight or number nine in. Um, Oh gosh, it must have been five or six years ago now. Um, and I, what I'd done, I'd when I was in Paris, I'd started a Facebook group, We Belong Dead, and I realised there was a huge amount of interest still in classic horror. So I thought, oh, why not give it a go? And I thought I'll do a one one off relaunch issue. And here we are, going strong. Where I've just sent today um, issue thirty seven to my designer. He's going to work on that. And then from there, we just branched out and we started doing books. And the first one was the 70s Monster Memories, which sold out pretty much instantly. And I'd never, never done a book before. And, you know, I mean, it's a risk because it's a huge financial outlay. You know, you're talking like 20,000 pounds. But we covered our costs, you know. And then since then, we've done, oh, my goodness, I think about 12 books. We're, I'm just working on the, the 13th book, which is a Euro horror. And they always seem to sell very well. You know, we do limited runs and do pretty much sell out within a couple of months. So, yeah, so that, that's that's where we are. And, and um, last year, just because really, you know, I had two years of inactivity work-wise with COVID and I was suddenly back at work doing my tours. And I just, it, the, the magazine was bi-monthly, but I just realised during the lockdowns, that was fine. I didn't have anything else to do, so I could concentrate on that. But then um, with all my work coming back, I simply didn't have the time to put into the magazine that it deserved. So um, my very good friend, uh, Daryl Buxton, who I've known for nearly 30 years, um, he stepped in. So he's now the editor. He's just celebrated his uh, first anniversary. So he's been doing it for a year now and he's doing a fantastic job. And um, I'm, I can't, you know, I, I'm still there in the background and, um, um, my role, really, I, I asked Daryl if I can do the picture research because I love doing that for the books and the magazines. So, um, but yeah, we're going from strength to strength. We've got um, Daryl's a lot more organised than me, so he's got um, issues planned up into next year. You know, uh, so it's good. It's in safe hands. So yeah, it's it's really lovely. I mean, um, I write for a, a number of magazines, different sort of horror related magazines. And, you know, I, I enjoy all of that. It's great. Um, but there's something very, I, I know that this, this word gets overused, uh, this idea of community, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sort of reluctant to use that word because I like I say, mm -hmm. I think it's overused, but I think something like we belong dead, it genuinely feels like that. You know, it feels like everybody that's involved is there not for any other reason other than the fact there is a solid love for these films and a, and a particular absolutely. era yeah i mean it, to me it feels more like a family and, and some of my closest friends I, I met through the magazine and you know and we've been friends for years and, and i love that about it and it's you know when i was when i was editing the magazine to be honest my criteria was what would 15, 16 year old me want to read about in a magazine? So I just picked articles that I would like to read and then I put it out to the writers and it, we, we have a fabulous um, collection of writers, yourself included, and artists as well, some mm. excellent artists. And, uh, and, and I like the informal 
in, in form a way it is as well because you know um people can just pick a, a movie which everyone else might think is just awful awful film but they, they love it so passionately that they you know they sing its praises and um it's it's great you know I, lots of different writing styles but it kind of all comes together and yeah i mean the shared thing as you say is that love for classic horror um originally we had a very strict cut-off date of 1979 but then a few years ago i was i was sat there one day and i, I realized i was looking nostalgically back at the 1980s um which to me is still was still just a couple of years ago but you know it's uh, so we kind of, we've uh, relented on that. So we cover a lot of 80s and 90s stuff. And, you know, occasionally we'll even do uh, more modern stuff as well, if it, if it fits in with, with what we're doing with the magazine. Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting because I think, um, I think it was Kim Newman. I think he said it in um, uh, an introduction to one of the We Belong Dead books. And he said, you know, every year now we're going to be in... Um, there's going to be a hundred year old horror film sort of every year from now, you know, cause it, yeah, and, exactly. I, I, and I, and I know that when, uh, you know, if I write for the, uh, I do a lot of work for a screen magazine and most of the work I do for screen magazine is, um, you know, uh, anniversary stuff. Uh, and most of it's, you know, the eighties, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you yeah. feel like he's really dated. Like, you know, can you do something on, um, American Wealth in London, because that's, uh, you know, 40 years old. It, what, what, eight? Wow. <laughs> it's it's scary, isn't it, actually? <laughs> yeah. So, Eric, um, when, um, what was your entry point into horror then? So, it, it was actually three things that came almost simultaneously, and it was back in 1974. Um, so, I, I was only 13 years old then. And the first thing I, I remember very, very clearly is we were on a family holiday on the Isle of Wight. We used to go there every year, f come down from uh, Durham. And I had, a, I had a post office savings account, which had a grand total of, uh, I think, £2.50, which was a fortune in those days, you know, mm. for a kid. And we were uh, on a holiday and ride on the Isle of Wight. And we walked down one of the, the main streets and there was a bookshop and in the window was this amazing, it was the cover, which I always remember, this lurid green cover. And there's Frankenstein's monster staring out. Of course, it was the Dennis Gifford pictorial history of horror movies, which I think for a lot of us was our our way into the, the genre. Bible. Yeah, and it's just absolutely, you know, it was just the cover that caught me. And of course, it was a pictorial history. And, you know, I, I, I think it was £1.98. So I spent most of my holiday money getting that. And then um, never looked back, really. You know, and then Alan Frank's books I picked up. And, but the Gifford book particularly, I mean, it comes in for a lot of criticism um, because of his dismissal of kind of Hammer and Amicus and more modern films. But, you know, I think at the time he was writing, um, that was, you know, he... To us, yeah, the universals are so far away, but to him, they were, that's the films he grew up with. And I think it's the films you grew up with that you have a special affection for. Um, and while he might have been dismissive of Hammer, that book was absolutely uh, packed full of um, images from Hammer films. It's the first time I saw any images of Christopher Lee as Dracula, for example. And, you know, I mean, you, you talk to people of a certain age about that book and, you know, 
the still of that still of the the woman with the axe in her head from the black cat, which I only got to see. It's this weird independent American film from the sixties, and I only got to see that um, a few years ago. And of course, at the time, you know, at the back he had um, an index of films, and you would tick off the films you saw on TV. But at the time, <laughs> you think well, I'm never going to see these, movies. you know, really yeah. obscure Japanese films and yeah, silent yeah, yeah, movies. Yeah. And now we have them all on Blu-ray and box sets, and it's it's incredible. I suspect some of the films you never actually saw, to be honest. Um, when you read his writing, but it was the visuals that was that was the the thing. And even now, you know, when I watch movies, I have these Gifford moments. My, and often the images are better than the films. Um, and as a, you know, as a child, you never thought you'd see these films, so you build up what the film is going to be like. And of course, in reality, it was never anything like that. So that that was definitely um, the first, my, my entry point. But around about the same time, I remember going with my mum to our local news agents. And do you remember those, um, they used to have those like kind of metal racks that you turn around and they had all the comics in there. Yep. And, and I used to get the DC ones, like the Unexpected and House of Mystery yeah, and yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. And we went in there and there, it didn't even really fit. It was folded over. There was Monster Mag number one. Um, for sale to adults only, 15 pence. And I don't know, I somehow persuaded my mum to buy that for me. And again, it was the images, you know, and it, it was it, it was incredible. Um, it, you know, I look back at it now and, and to think that, you know, Des Skinner ended up doing um, Monster Mag and House of Hammer. Um, these days, you know, I, when I'm not working, I, we meet up every Tuesday for a coffee and I still pinch myself thinking, this is the guy who did House of Hammer magazine and Monster Mag and, um, but you know, so I, my bedroom was all these Monster Mag posters. And then the third thing was um, one day I went to, I was, I was as a teenager, I was really into model kits, you know, um, usually like fighter planes or the Bismarck and stuff like that. And I went to my local uh, model shop and there in the window, again, it was, it was the image that caught me was, uh, one of the Aurora square boxes, the glow-in-the-dark models, Phantom of the Opera, 99 pence. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have that. And I collected pretty much all of those glow-in-the-dark models with the exception of King Kong and Godzilla. For some reason, I could I could never find. Um, uh, but yeah, so those three things coming a few months of each other started out on uh, love of horror movies. And you know, no, I mean, I'm sure it's the same with you and many other people. You look back and you think, oh, God, I wish I'd kept all those things. Because as an adult, Phantom of the Opera model is probably going to set you back like pounds or something these days, you know. Um, but, yeah, those are the three things. And from there, in the 70s was a great time to be into monsters because it seemed like every week a new uh, monster magazine came out. You know, so we were very, very spoiled for choice then, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I mean, I, I stated on this podcast again and again, I mean, that the importance of those, the Gifford and the Alan Frank books. And like you say, the, it, it, it was the images. It, it's difficult to um, get that over in, in this internet age that, that now you can access pretty much any image you yeah. want to you know in terms of films which is great you know um but then because you might 
never at that point like you said you might you might think well i'm never going to see this film particularly mm -hmm. if it's some some sort of more obscure film so those images they would conjure things in your head I mean, and they and you created because there was this disconnect with actually being able to access these films in a weird way they created more of a kind of a, an emotional link because you 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 became yeah, obsessed with them you know as i've said over and over again that in the alan frank book it was that image from freaks that just yes that fascinated me because it didn't make any sense it was just yeah. like you know you know you, you you see johnny eck you know just leaning with one hand you think how is that even happening <laughs> what what am i looking at <laughs> And I remember I also, uh, I think it was again in the Alan Frank, the, the pictorial history of horror, the um, the images, which I think were cut from the theatrical version, but they're in the Alan Frank book of the mummy, the, the Christopher Lee, 1959, the mummy of the tongue mm -hmm. being taken out. Because yes. you, you, yeah. and you, you got to see those pictures of the, the, the people cutting his tongue out, holding the tongue up. And it's just, that was just like, wow. And one, I was slight, when I first, when I actually got to see the mummy, I was slightly disappointed because those images yeah, were in. Yeah. But, uh, oh yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. Just incredible books. Great, great books. So um, I think uh, we'll, uh, we'll introduce the film. So today we are going to be looking at the 1954 monster movie, Them, as directed by Gordon Douglas. Get the antennae! Get the antennae! So, Eric, uh, when was the first time you came across this film? So, I remember it so well. Um, so, I lived in uh, County Durham. So, our local TV channel was Tyne Tees. And um, on a Friday, they would have like, it was kind of like an appointment with Fear thing. 10.30 after the news, they would have a, a horror film on. And I was already into, you know, horror movies by that point. I think I'd already seen... Dracula, Prince of Darkness was my first entry into Hammer. I remember that um, vividly. That was that was actually on BBC. And I was I remember in school. I remember it so well. I was there in what was then called technical drawing. I don't know if you can still do that at school. Um, I found it incredibly boring, but you know. And people were talking about, oh, what's the horror movie tonight? Because in those days. Um, everybody wanted to watch these films and everybody would talk about them in the playground and you know, we talked about the Gifford book. I remember bringing my copy in and it got passed around the entire classroom. Everyone, you know, like, wow, look at this. And um, in the, no, in no, the... Nobody wanted to be that kid at that point yes. that hadn't seen the horror film that was on the exactly. night before. The people would, would say they'd seen it even if they had, it was obvious that they hadn't, but, you know. Um, but um, in the... Uh, the listings in the local newspaper, Northern Echo, it just said a Friday night, uh, Friday fright film, then with an exclamation mark, 1954. And that's all it said. And I thought, well, what on earth is this going to be about? Like, And I, I remember that day I, I went in, in my head, I 
created all these different stories. I had, because it said, that's all it said. It said nothing. And I knew nothing about this film at all. And so, you know, um, as 10.30 approached, I'm like, what's it going to be? And then, you know, the that very um, effective uh, title card came on. And I didn't know what I was watching at first, you know, because, you know, as you know, the first half of it, it's almost like a, a detective procedural thing. Um, yeah. And I, so in, until that, that first ant appeared, I had no idea it was about ants or giant ants or radiation or anything. And that was such a shock, you know, and that that weird noise that you keep hearing, and um, and that always that always stayed with me. Um, I mean, I've seen it many many times since, um, but it never fails to entertain. It's one of those movies that I just watch endlessly over and over again and be entertained by it, you know. It's got it, it it's got multiple elements. I think. I think, like you said, the first. I mean, I, I, when I was watching it again the other day, what struck me, um, the first half an hour of it, like you said, it is this kind of police proce procedural. But I think also mm. as well, the first half hour, it's pure horror. And, yes. you know, and, and, and part, I love, don't get me wrong, I love it when the giant ants appear and it turns into a monster movie. But actually that first half an hour that it, it could have been a kind of almost a Val Luton sort of film that you could have not had the ants in it at all. And it would have been really effective because I love, I love the clues they set and the suspense they build, obviously with the, 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 the scene with the little girl and the formic acid mm -hmm. and, and the caravans been ripped apart and the sugar lumps and all this kind of stuff. It really, really builds the tension. And it's almost, I think, that first half an hour as well is almost like it's got you've got this detective elements, you've got this 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 slow build of the horror, but it's also kind of ghostly and haunting as well. You know, the the desert and the the the, the sand being swept up against it's really really it is like a ghost story. It, it's it's really oh, that very, first half hour is brilliantly atmospheric. Very much so. And then even you know, when the scientists arrive and um they kind of know what it is, but they still keep the audience in the dark. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, until that, that first revealed. And, you know, I mean, anyone who knows anything about the film knows that originally Warner Brothers were going to do it in colour and 3D. Mm. But I'm kind of glad that it's black and white because it gives it that kind of almost documentary film noir feel to it. Yeah, it does. You know? it, it, yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it, no, I don't, I don't think it worked in colour. I mean, I, not only because I don't know what they would have done with the ants, because apparently um, the ants were like a purple-green colour in reality. And I always, I, I, when I found out, that I always kind of imagined <laughs> some poor souls driving through the desert coming across these big massive purple green ants I must have wondered whether they'd had a bit of peyote in their coffee <laughs> um, yeah. yeah no i think it works much better as a black and white film like you said it's very noirish in places and ghost story like and detective procedure it's got all these kind this stuff going on i love i love the whole film but i love that first half an hour i think it's really effective yeah, and then as you say, it's suddenly, wow, it's a monster movie, you know. Um, and going into it not knowing anything about it was, was wonderful. But I think, yeah, 
even even today we've got you know CGI and everything that you can accomplish on the screen. Um, I still think it's incredibly effective. I mean, I'm not sure now you look at it and it's actually look anything like that. But to me, that's always going to be the giant ant film or the giant uh, monster film. Uh, I mean, and of course, many, many came afterwards. You know, you had mm. Universal did uh, Tarantula, which is also excellent film. Yeah, it's brilliant, yeah. Um, but it, it kind of opened the floodgates because it was so successful for Warner Brothers. I mean, I think it was that unexpected hit of, of 1954. Uh, um, and, you know, over, over the years, I've read a lot of things about, I think even at the moment, somebody's mooting a, a remake of it. And, you know, I'm not one of these people who say, oh, you should never remake these films because the original film's always going to be there. So I never really understood the argument, the hatred that people have for remakes. And, you know, um, I, but for me, you know, that, 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 was, that was the film that, that, that really got me into the science fiction rather than horror. Because it's kind of a, like I said, it's a mixture of science fiction and horror, isn't it? You yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely obviously you've got the you know the whole kind of the, the the science element of it, but also there are scenes as I said, you know, the first half an hour is pure horror, but also you know maybe younger audiences might look at the effects now and and laugh a little bit. I don't know, but I I you know I think there are moments of genuine horror. I, the, when when they're flying over and they see the ant. Um, with oh, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, with a carcass in yeah, it's yes, really, yeah. really effective. It's brilliantly done. That is, and it's terrifying. It's really, really it's good. Great. And of course, the sound before you ever see yeah. the last sound that they make is that stays with you. And um, you know, I mean, I, I, it's one of those films. There's so many memorable scenes, but particularly you know when the first ant appears and they have to shoot the antennae, and then as, when you see when they go into the into the nest as well. It's 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 terrifying. You yeah, it's know. very um, eerie. The, the 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 nest, especially, I think, with the eggs and stuff. And and again, that was uh, one of those images from the uh, I think it was the the Dennis Gifford book. Um, yeah, and it just looks very uncanny uh, and and very very mysterious. Um, <clears throat> but like you say, it was kind of part. It was one of well, it's probably the first kind of big bug movie um but it, it was also part and parcel of those um films that came out in in the early to, to mid 50s um where we saw um so before in the 30s we'd had the kind of gothic horror stuff and then mm -hmm. they'd sort of revived that in the 40s with the after the really successful um when when they'd re-released dracula and frankenstein in 1938 so there was this this urge to come back so universal made this string of 40s monster movies in um yes. but then that slowly having the those original monsters almost be killed off by the likes of abbott and costello you know and people oh, getting yes, older yeah. and you know Karloff and lugosi going on getting older and then we had these atomic age films really so we saw this change from horror pure horror to more science fiction so i mean what's your take on that kind of changeover and those sort of science fiction films that came about in the the 50s well i think certainly um you know, with the development of the atomic bombs and everything, you know, the world... And I think also, after the the real-life horrors of the Second World War, um, 
there was no appetite for gothic horror. You know, it's seen its day. And it was kind of the law of diminishing returns, wasn't it? And I mean, one of the things I like about them is also, I think it has a message in there about, you know, we've opened this door and who knows what's going to happen now. We've exploded this bomb. Um, and I think, the, you know, the gothic horrors were more, had become more just cliches of themselves. They were more for the kids, you know. Um, they weren't really taken that seriously. Uh, of course, until, you know, the late 50s when Hammer came along and infused it with blood and colour. Um, but suddenly it was um, it was all about science fiction, but particularly giant monsters, I think. You know, in, and I think one of the big influences for Hollywood, of course, was uh, Godzilla in Japan. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, when you talk to people about Godzilla, a lot of people don't take them seriously because the later ones are just kiddies films, you know. But you watch that original one. It's a very sobering, very depressing film. And these people had lived through two of their cities been having, you know, atom bombs dropped on them. And, it, you know, Godzilla is all about that, isn't it? It's about um, the effect of radiation. And it's a very, very serious picture. It's fantastic grim. Godzilla isn't has yeah. more, more akin with something like Threads in parts. It's very documentary-like. Well, it's, you know, it's not... I mean, they develop, you know, the, he develops that bomb that takes all the oxygen out of the yeah. ocean. And, you know, he kills himself because, and, you know, you, you, you can see the comparisons, you know, it's very relevant today you know, with Oppenheimer out at the cinemas and stuff. Um, so I think Godzilla certainly had a big effect, you know, that, that you know, of course, the US um, got the rights and they released a different version with Raymond Burr, which um, you know, if anyone still hasn't seen the original, watch the Japanese one, definitely, because it's very, very different in tone. But, you know, I mean, I think the studios, including Warner Brothers, thought, oh, it's making a fortune. Let's do something um, with giant monsters. And, you know, so that was kind of the floodgates because then Universal, who, who was the home of, you know, the gothic classic monsters, they make Tarantula and then they start making a whole series of movies. And most of them are unfortunately quite inferior, but still a lot of fun, you know. And I think, I mean, it's hard for us now in this day and age to think, how people viewed these things back in the 50s. You know, you, you'd, the war had ended with the dropping of the atomic bombs, but then you had the Cold War, and there was that very real fear that atomic war was going to break out and everyone was mm. going to be killed. And nobody really knew what the effects of radiation were going to be. So I think that's why those films were so popular. Uh, whereas the Gothic films, they, you know, people thought, well, these aren't real. I mean, they're obviously not real. Vampires and werewolves and stuff. But who knew with with atomic testing what what the effects were going to be you know and i think that's why they became very very popular and there were a lot of fun as well the movies you know yeah i mean i guess the sort of king of those kind of films at that time was like jack arnold you know you've got all these brilliant sort of you know even from something like incredible shrinking man or it came from out of space or whatever uh, it, it, it's that but i think that there were quite a number of those films but obviously um they were coming at it from different angles so i think what when a lot of those early 50s films so day the earth stood still or whatever there is this kind of um 
almost this kind of Doctor Who Quatermass sort of element yes. of the scientist being in charge, the scientist being the hero or the scientist or logical thinking. Uh, but then there is a kind of this dichotomy where in a lot of other films, particularly, you know, if you think about Howard Hawke's production, um, thing from another world, it's oh, it's yeah. almost, it, it's the opposite. It's this gung-ho, the science, the scientists are not to be trusted. And exactly. uh, it's yeah. the military. So, but I think them is a really good example of the military and scientists working together to try working and solve together. a problem. And, and I think, you know, I mean, my favorite character in that is one played by uh, Edmund Gwen. Yes. Um, because he has that authority and, you know, he has the most quotable lines, I think, in the, in the whole movie. And there's something about him. I, I don't know if it's because, you know, I, I associated him with uh, Chris Kringle. Yes. Um, yeah. And so he's already, you know, you've, he's a trusting person and that, but, um, and he's a wonderful actor as well. But I love the dynamics with him and his daughter, played by uh, John Weldon. And, um, and, but like you say, how they actually work with the military um, rather than in the thing from another world working against each other. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I mean, I love the thing from another world as well. Um, it's typical kind of Howard Hawks, the, <laughs> the overlaying dialogue, so, which, which is what it would be like in real life. That's how people talk. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, and, you know, I love the monster in that as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like them, perhaps because it's the first one I saw. Um, it, it's the one that had the greatest impression on me, uh, really. And um, I mean, I think that the whole, all of the cast are wonderful in that. I don't think there's a bad performance at all in, in that entire film. Um, and it's funny the way that these films have an effect on you, because I remember <laughs> when I was. Uh, when I'd left school and I, I was uh, unemployed, I used to go to the cinema all the time. Um, it was so cheap. And then those are the days you could just sit in the cinema and watch the same film over and over again, you know. And there was a lot of reissues like Jaws and stuff like that. But I remember, I don't even know if I should admit this, but being a huge fan when Grease came out, yeah. I think I was in love with Olivia Newton-John. And imagine my delight watching Greece and right at the end where they have the car race. Yes, all I could yeah, yeah. About was where are the ants, you know, yeah, because yeah. it's in that dried up uh, Los Angeles River. It's so funny. But also, Greece, um, it's got um, clips from the blob as well, hasn't it? Yes, yeah. And they were driving, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, these things just seep into your consciousness, don't they? Um, and uh, again, it's, it's a film that I can just watch over and over, like like Bride of Frankenstein and Jaws and Alien, you know, um, and I, I never tire, and I see something new in it every time, mm. you know, and, um, but yeah, it's just, so I think um, it was a very re real fear for people in the mid fifties, the threat of atomic war, and also the unknown, what, what does radiation do? What, can it make things grow larger and, um, and hence, you know, there's so many films about things getting bigger and, <laughs> no, and giant the, creatures. The, and... the disappointing actual answer is, no, it just melts you from the inside. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's not as good as giant yeah. ants. You know, I exactly. want to live in a world where radioactivity produces giant ants. <laughs> yeah. 
And of course, I mean, I read somewhere once that um, when it was written, uh, what was the man's name? George, I can't remember offhand. But the guy who wrote it. Um, George Worthing Yates, yeah. That's right, yes. But that summer, there'd been a huge infestation of ants all over the US. Um, and it had been a real problem. That gave him the idea. And his original um, script apparently had the ants in the New York subway, which I think if they do a remake, that would be a good yeah, idea. I, 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 yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, I just want to get back um, to casting and characters because I think there's a... Uh, there's so a couple of things I want to talk about because I it, it, the thing with them I think there's a um, a number of things with a casting and characting which is slightly unusual because um, it feels like there's not really a specific protagonist it's kind of it's very much an ensemble piece and it we'll really get is. yeah we'll get back to James Whitmore in a minute because there's there's a few issues I want to discuss about James Whitmore. But it, it, yeah, it, it feels. Um, I, I, I well, clearly, you know, someone like Joe Dante must have been very influenced by this film. Obviously, in terms of him referencing it in matinee and things like that. But also, um, you know, Joe Dante is the kind of master of the ensemble piece. You know, it's very difficult to to pick out a protagonist from a Joe Dante film. They tend to be ensemble casts. And I think this is very much ahead of its time in some ways. And I think that, um, you know, Joan Weldon as, as Pat, I think in some ways obviously it's of its time you know she's she's mm -hmm. what she's progressive in that she is a scientist and she's at the forefront of the action and she goes down into the tunnels and she's all that but obviously we've got her out there she is the kind of classic love interest and also you, you know the first time we see her of course she gets her skirt caught on the yeah. on the ladder giving all the male stars in the cast uh, an eyeful of her legs you know so we've got all that kind of 50s nonsense going on but i think in some ways it's very progressive in terms of casting and the way oh, the way it's uh, absolutely i mean i think it, it's unusual for a 50s science fiction film now because it's a very strong female character um given everything that you've said um she's not just to stand there and scream and be terrorized and be rescued she she's part of the team she takes an active part in it and i think what's unusual about the cast is it's like you say it's very ensemble cast there's no star names really i mean i guess um edmund gwen would be the most mm. to the 50s audience he would be the most well-known um actor in it um, but I think that works to the benefit of the movie. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of, you know, when they were casting Jaws and they wanted all these big names um, in the parts. And then they went for relatively unknown people. And I think that works better because I don't know if it was Spielberg or Zanakin Brown had said, if we cast big names, the audience would just be watching them all the time and oh that's steve mcqueen and and it would take them out of the story you know and i think it's the same it's the same with them i think um and what also i think is unusual about them is you have these four main leads who became or become they're not like 
superheroes are just ordinary people put in this extraordinary situation. But I think what's unusual about the movie, um, you get to, you get to know the characters, you get to like the characters, and then one of them is killed at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, which, which you know, normally there's a happy ending. Everyone survives. The, the threat is is done. Um, and I think if, if, as I said before, of the four uh, characters, I think the elderly professor is my favorite i mean he just brings th this kind of dignity to the role and you know he gets all the best lines as well of course but th they're all fantastic and then you know e even the supporting cast uh, the little girl i think is amazing mm. you know um and you know when i started to watch the film the first time i thought what is going on what what's happened to this girl and like why is she like this and it's and well, you know well, i mean we, we were talking about um you know possible remakes or whatever my mm. my pitch if i was gonna not that i'm ever gonna be you know presenting <laughs> a hollywood pitch but if i was my pitch would be okay let, let's set this in the mid 80s 30 years mm. on from the original events and it's the story of the girl who's who's now in her uh -huh. sort of 30s or 40s or whatever and she's you know trying to deal with this and you know i i just there's a story in there and, and obviously a resurgence of the ants or whatever and she knows how to deal with it but I, yeah that would be my pitch but she is great she a little great the haunting look on her face is absolutely incredible yeah it, it's you know but like with a lot of these movies at the end, I felt I didn't want the ants to be destroyed. I wanted to be another colony somewhere. You know, you don't want the monsters to be killed. And um, uh, the scene on the ship, I think, is very effective. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, very well done. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, the, the giant life-size puppets. But I think they work actually remarkably well um, oh, in the scenes. This... Uh... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, I think. Uh, we'll get back to James Whitmore in a minute. But there's a lot of stuff in there in terms of the, the, the story. Obviously, they wouldn't have had the budget or the technical know-how to do some of the, the stuff they're describing. But um, I, I like the fact that some of it happens off screen. The, the yeah. idea of the giant ants, you know, crossing the ocean or or yeah, attacking yes. these ships it's, it's it's a terrifying idea and 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 i i'm glad they didn't you know we get a glimpse of one of the ants on the ship that's about yeah. it but i you know i'm glad they didn't try and tackle it because i like the idea of um we get all these kind of uh reliable or unreliable witnesses you know and and they're, they're talking yeah, yeah. you know and also we get the archetype which became a kind of cinema archetype of the guy who lives out in the middle of nowhere has seen some sort of ufo and he's yeah. immediately chucked into a lunatic asylum yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's willing to discuss anything no he's he's clearly insane you know yeah, Even though, yeah. you know they're, they're 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 tackling giant ants, but he must be insane. And then you've got the drunks as well, which is quite. Yeah, I like how there's all these kind of unreliable or reliable sort of witnesses as well. Yes, definitely. I mean, yeah, those, those supporting characters that they make the film as well. You know, um, very entertaining, I think. Uh, and um, yeah, of course, James Arness. Mm, yeah, was good smoke. Gunsmoke, but the yeah. thing from another world as well. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. 
I heard a I heard a story. I mean, you take all these things with a pinch of salt, but because he was so tall, they had to do a <laughs> ditch for him to walk in, so he wasn't towering above the well, other cast James Whitmore apparently used uh, lifts in his shoes as well. Um, right. I yeah. think you. I think you. I think you needed stilts to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, James Whitmore is an odd. Cat. I'm, I'm. I'm not taking anything away from him a very fine actor you know and he had a, an unbelievable career you know he, he very prolific you know um yes. uh, he worked a lot in the sort of 40s 50s uh, and obviously you know went on to be sort of brooks in the shawshank redemption and stuff like that mm-hmm. but i think he was um you know to be fair i think he was he, he was a brilliant character actor i he's not leading man material at all is he not not, not by ours or, or or the standards back then which is what's weird about it is because we can look at it now as an ensemble piece and it works well as an ensemble piece i'm not sure james whitmore got that memo though because he's really pushing his stardom you know and i and i i read yeah not just about the um the lifts in his shoes to try and compete with James Arness, but um, he was apparently doing sort of bits of business with his hands and stuff. And so that the the camera would always be on him because he does get star billing. You know, if you look at the credits, his name's the one that, but he's not, he's not really. uh, And I think the problem, uh, I've not got a massive problem. I think it's a great film and I I love James, uh, I love James Whitmore, but I think, if anything, the problem is um, maybe they or he is not sure what to do with his character because his character's a bit fucking ridiculous because he goes from being like um, a low-level sort of sergeant. He's a beat cop, yeah. basically, in a quiet little sleepy desert town. And then he's he's then he, he's pulling a machine gun from, from his boots. And then he's like an FBI G-man. And then he's he's Mr. Soldier Man. He's Action Man with his flamethrower. It's kind of like, what, what, what training academy did you go to? <laughs> I mean, it is strange, isn't it? Because in reality, the local cops would have just been sidelined immediately. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know because he's sitting at the table with the fucking president's mess. (laughs) Where does this happen? I know. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was was very big, wasn't he, in the 40s and 50s. Mm. And I think for the audiences, that must have been even more of a shock that he gets killed. You know, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the other thing I like about it though, is there. Okay, there's you know it's 1950s that cliched love story with um, uh, James Arness and John Weldon, but it's not like lots of other films they would have had this love triangle yeah. going on. But the, the, they don't complicate it with that. You know, they have to have the, the little romance thing, of course. Um, but it's never like um, that he's vying for for her hand. And there's a competition between the two young male leads or anything like that. But yeah, it is. I mean, when you think about it, it is strange, isn't it? He's he's involved right to the bitter end, and, and in reality, of course, he wouldn't be. You know. No, um, no. Also, I, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe I don't know. This is complete speculation. Maybe they 
considered the love triangle but i i maybe they just threw it out because who's going to believe that anybody would go for james whitmore over james arness i'm not i don't know well yeah it, it, indeed i mean I, I i've always thought it's curious because it was such a huge hit for warner brothers that there was never a sequel mm. right well you know I, I, yeah it's odd isn't it i'm, it's kind, I'm kind of glad they didn't yeah, but it, 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 yeah. it's yeah it seems odd yeah considering uh you know something like they got three films out of the creature from the black lagoon um mm. I, I, I like those sequels but by the the last one yeah. you know they were clearly running out of ideas you know so um but yeah, I, yeah it's, it's odd that, that this they didn't revisit this because i think like you said i think it was it's about a 50th uh biggest grossing film of the year but I th i'm sure it was yeah. warner brothers actual biggest film of that year it was huge for them yeah yeah it's um and you know like we, we said previously it opened the floodgates didn't it because then universal saw how well it did and they, they made tarantula which is another great movie um with a desert setting as well uh and then every type of creature you could imagine was suddenly getting uh, magnified by atomic explosions and um but very few i mean in in the decades since very very few films i with giant ants in them lots of films about giant spiders but ants regular sized ants we see a lot in movies don't we but giant ones i i watched the film when i was over in Germany with Ruth, we watched this film called uh, what was it? it was it was it something desert. I can't remember. It was about giant ants, but it was awful. It was like an amateur, but, but they kind of paid homage to them, which I thought was quite cute. But the film's actually very it was awful. The ants looked much worse than the ones in there. Them, you know. Um, but I can't really think of any other movies that had giant ants really, other than them. The thing is. Um... Having, I, I don't anymore. I used to have an allotment a few years ago because that's the right. kind of thing you do when you get into your 40s and 50s. You get an allotment. And I, I gave yeah. it up after about a year because it seemed fucking hard. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, having had an allotment, um, I, would, I was getting attacked regularly by red ants. They were oh. little fuckers, they are. So I, I don't think you need... Ants don't have to be giant to be terrifying. Even if ants, no. if they were blasted with radiation or whatever, and just became sort of two inches big rather than sort of tight, they they take over. I'm sure they would. They were given a number oh, of weeks it, to take over. Well, you know, apart from it, them, the other ant film that I absolutely love, even though it's it's awful Hollywood romance drama thing, is um, the Naked Jungle, which I oh yeah yeah yeah. And just worth watching for those final scenes where they are like millions of ants are on the move and start eating everything in their in their path. It's 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 brilliant, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, like well, getting back to what you're saying. I mean, the cast is just uniform. I don't think there's a bad performance in that cast at all, you know. And and I think the reason maybe the reason that they are relatively, I say relatively unknown, um, the. I mean, 
as soon as this film's made and it's out there, it's big business and, and lots of other studios start jumping on the bandwagon. But, mm. you know, on paper, at that time, you know, I, I, I don't know if they approached bigger actors, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would have said, no, I'm not doing this. It's about giant yeah. ants. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> um, yeah. um, I... I what was very nice, though, is back in the 90s when I lived in Nottingham and I worked in the city centre. I've lived, I, I'm Nottingham. So I know, yeah. yeah. Where, where, whereabouts in Nottingham did you live? At Forest Fields. I lived in Forest Fields for 20 years. I live in Sherwood oh, now. Wow. I've gone up in the world, but I lived in oh, Forest wow. Fields oh, for, yeah. for 20 years, yeah. yeah. I, I used to work for Princes down in the, the city centre and um, once a week on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, after I finished work at five, I would just go to the cinema because it was always empty. There was never anybody in there to see what was what whatever film was on uh, that week. And I remember one week going and it was um, The Relic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, it's uh, James Whitmore. Like, <laughs> yeah. it suddenly pops up in, in another giant monster movie <laughs> was he playing the oh. title role because <laughs> he, he would have been by that time wouldn't he? yeah <laughs> a bit, I, I don't know that might well have been his last movie i don't know i was in the wheelchair the whole film but um but yeah yeah it's uh but um yeah you know with the, the whole remake thing I'd, I, I'd, I mean i'd like to see a reinterpretation see what they could do with it it could be either really awful and or really great you know but you know what if they were to do it, like I, I always make this point because I, I do get a bit fed up whenever some remake is announced. Okay, I get it. You know, I understand. Like, why keep remaking things? Make something new. But then again, I just think that I don't understand all the hate remakes get because the original is still there. It's not like it's yeah, you can't. It, yeah, you know? uh, it, it... yeah. Some remakes, some reimaginings are quite good. Others are just awful. But you know, it's. Yeah. But I'm not. I, I I don't. I mentioned this before, but I'm. I, I I don't buy into this thing of you know. There's no decent horror films anymore. This I, no. I just I I really take that to task. Some of the best horror films ever made have been made this century, this decade. Some some incredible yeah, films. Great films. Yeah, I, I was watching, I was the other night in my hotel room, I was a bit bored, so I was flicking through Netflix, and I watched this film, I never even heard of it, it's a Spanish film called Valley of the Dead, oh, it's yeah. brilliant, it's about zombies, but set during the Spanish Civil War, and there's Nazis in there, and and it, it's amazing, like it's, a, never, got a, never got a cinema release or anything, most people probably have never heard of it, and so, yeah, so many good films. And the problem is, you know, I, I read something yesterday. Everyone's now posting about Amicus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amicus. And, but it's going to be exactly the same as when Hammer were relaunched. Everyone will be like, well, this isn't like the Hammer that used to be. Well, of course it's not, because it's not 1950, 1960, you know. I mean, it's. I, I saw that same link as well. And, and you know, so you check the comments straight away. And like, within three comments, it's, this is. This is awful. This is it's like for fuck's sake! Can you just let them make a film before you jump on it and decide it's the oh, it, yeah? It annoys me. So um, yeah, so if they do do a remake, I mean, I think I've heard in the last few months that talking about uh, 
a them remake. But whether you know, you hear all this talk, whether it actually comes off or not. But it could be, it could be spectacular, and um, it takes nothing away from the original. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I would have liked to. I mean, uh, maybe not now, well, but I think back in his kind of heyday. I think Tim Burton could have done something really interesting with it. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, possi possibly uh, Peter Jackson could have done something as well. I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't escape. And I think, I think you know, some of the best, um, well, some of my favourite films are remakes, you know. Um, the Fly uh, is brilliant. Uh, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 78 version is in incredible yeah. as well. The Thing, you know, all of these kind of things are just brilliant. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, um, at the blob, I like, I like the eighties version of the blob. I think that's terrific. Oh, know. it's brilliant, isn't it? It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. It's uh... so who knows? We might see giant ants on the screen yet again. With a bit of luck. Okay. Well, so where, um, where of you know, what do you think is the kind of legacy of this film, and what you know, what are the what has it influenced, and what what how did it change cinema? Well, I think in the immediate aftermath, of course, it just started that whole deluge of giant animal movies, which kind of predominated the cinemas in the 1950s, even to the 60s, even to the 70s. Although by the 70s, it was getting ridiculous when you have, like, giant rabbits and Michael <laughs> Even giant rabbits. That's brilliant. I love that. Oh, yeah. So, but also I think it's, you know, I think in a way it wasn't just about influencing studios to do giant creatures, but these kind of nature goes wild stuff that became very popular in the 70s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which were just normal sized animals, but becoming a threat, you know, bees, ants, spiders, uh, what have you. And certainly, I mean, you can see, like you mentioned George Ante, I mean, and... Martinez is, the, is the, the most obvious example of that. And, and I love how on the, uh, the Blu-ray disc, the Arrow release, they have the, uh, the actual Mant The Mant movie, film, yeah, yeah. Which you kind of wished he'd made it as an actual film. It, it they, looks like they, a lot of fun. They, they made that. I think that was the first thing they made. They they right. filmed those sections yeah. first and then, and then they did the rest of the film. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I had a white long-term influence and you know because even today you know films about animals gone crazy or or monsters are still hugely popular with audiences and um but i think i don't know i mean it, it's different of course because you know we can't put ourselves in the mindset of someone audience member in the 50s where the, the threat of nuclear annihilation was a very real thing I mean, people were genuinely terrified the world was going to end. And so I think these films had a real resonance that they don't have now. Um, I mean, the world could end, you know, who knows? But it's not, it's not, do you know what I mean? It's not like there all the time that nuclear war could start at any moment. Um, and I think it also kind of influenced, in a weird way, more mainstream Hollywood started to look at the effects of atomic bombs and atomic war and the end of the world and made a lot you know made very very serious movies about it not, not with no monsters whatsoever yeah um 
and you know that in the fifties and sixties again, that was a huge that was a huge thing about the the world ending and you know films like on the beach and um, uh, what's what's the one with um, Henry Fonda's the president. Well, basically, he has to order the bombing of New York at the end. Um, I can't remember what it's called. For Failsafe. Failsafe, that's the one. Thank you, yeah. And all those kind of films. I think, in a way, not in a huge way, but I think indirectly, we're probably a little bit influenced by films like them that, that take that concept of annihilation by nuclear war but make it into a fun film of monsters. Um, because they're also getting a message across, you know, when... And uh, Edmund Gwen is talking about opening a door and who knows what's going to happen. He's talking about, you know, the effects of nuclear radiation and fallout and very serious, depressing issues. Um, but they're, tack they're tackling it in a fun way, you know, because they have giant ants in there. Whereas uh, mainstream Hollywood is doing it in a much more serious way. So I think there was, there's definitely an interconnection there. I mean, I think giants, I mean, we don't really get a lot of, I mean, apart from the, you know, the, the reimagined Godzilla films, which, you know, that's to do with radiation as well, of course, you know, and we, we don't get a lot of mutant giant monster stuff at the moment, do we? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I guess we've just had the Meg too, but that's more supposedly about evolution and sort of all that kind yeah. of stuff as well. Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I, I don't know. I, I whether it's just people don't buy it, but I, I don't know. Like you say, like Godzilla, that franchise continues to sell well and be be good. So, well, not necessarily good, but but popular, you know. Um, yeah, yeah sure. I, I would like to see a return. I, I, you know, there's things we don't see enough now. You know, I'm sounding like an old fart now, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, giant insects on screen and quicksand. What happened to quicksand? <laughs> yeah, it isn't there anymore. It's very strange. It's gone. Isn't it? yeah. Quicksand's <laughs> oh, no longer God. a threat. I was really? I was in the, under mortal fear when I was a kid that I, thought I was going <laughs> to stumble into some quicksand. <laughs> well, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Eric, any, any other uh, thoughts to share on them before we finish up? Just, I think, if anyone's not seen it, I mean, that's that's a great gateway into the whole giant monster. Uh, and it, for me, it, it'll always be the best. I mean, it was the first and it's the best. And I think it a very good companion piece to Godzilla, the, the Japanese Gojira, from the same year. Um, and they're both tackling the effects of radiation in a different way. One is a lot of fun. Well, there was a lot of fun. Um, but as we mentioned earlier, Godzilla is actually a very depressing, brutal film. Um, but I think that would make a great double bill. But um, I'm envious of some event, someone who's not seen them to see it for the first time. We probably spoke it a lot now. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm guessing anyone comes to them. If you buy the DVD or the Blu-ray, it's got a giant ant on the front. So it's not. Yeah, whereas when yeah, I saw yeah. it, I had no idea. You know, it's just the word them in the newspaper. And I knew nothing about the movie at all. So it was a, rev a revelation to me, you know, and it's, it stayed with me all, all this time. And that's why I'll, I'll just endlessly rewatch that movie, you know, and I'd recommend it to anyone, definitely. 
yeah, if if you are an adult and you've never seen it, I would still recommend it. You're, you're going to get a kick out of it. But, you know, the best possible time to see them for the first time is when you're five or six years old, I think. Definitely, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to give us a quick plug of We Belong Dead? Yeah, thank you. Well, um, so from two issues ago, we, we decided to sell our soul to the devil and go the Amazon route, um, may, mainly because just the cost of printing and inks is just getting so ridiculously high. It, it was crippling us. You know, it, it's not a, a professional publication. It's it's a hobby. We all do it for the, for the love of it. And um, I was getting to a situation where I was actually losing money. So, I, you know, I didn't want to carry on like that. So we do. So it's now available on Amazon. And the big advantage there is that um, if you're outside the UK, you don't have those huge um, shipping costs because you just order it from your local Amazon, whether you're in Germany or France or the US or Japan uh, or, or wherever. But what's also been good is we've managed to pull all the out of, out of um, stock, all the sold out issues are now up available to buy on Amazon as well, uh, all the back issues and the specials. And we started to slowly put some of the books, um, make them available, like the 70s Monster Memory and the Peter Cushion book. So basically, if you just go to your local, go on to your Amazon, whichever country you're in, and just type in We Belong Dead, it should show all the stuff that's available. So we're, we're going very strong. And I said, I've just sent issue 37 over to the designer. So that should be out in a week or so, hopefully. And um, we've got lots of plans for next year. We, we're doing a, a Dan's going to produce a, a Dracula special, looking at not the, ob the obvious contenders, but um, the more weird and out there interpretations of Dracula. And um, we're going to should, do... should get Kim Newman on board for that. We are, we're going to do an interview with Kim. Oh, ah, yes. right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, See, uh, um, for those that aren't aware, Kim Newman does this... Obviously, he's a, a brilliant sort of film critic and writer but, writer, but he also does this thing on Facebook where he does your daily Dracula. And he, Dracula, he exactly. yeah, he drags up some really obscure stuff. It's great. Really obscure, yes. And the other thing, I'm ex well, Daryl's um, proposed and we're going to do a special which is tentatively called From Hugo to Hammer. And it looks at that period of British horror films, because everyone does Hammer and Amicus and all that, but that period from uh, Dead of Night, yeah, hence the Hugo because of the, the dummy, um, up until the Quatermass Experiment, because there's some very good films in that yes. period that are never Absolutely. really written about. And the one I'm very excited about, which is actually now is going to be a, a double issue, so we're going to release two issues on the same day, is Japanese horror. And... Oh. Myself and Daryl sat down and compiled a list. And again, you know, this comes back to the Dennis Gifford influence, things like the living skeleton and the yeah, 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 witch and these weird, bizarre titles you never thought you'd see. And now you can get a, a um, an arrow release with lots of extras. And but when we made the list, we realized it was just far too much to fit in a hundred page issue. So we're going to do two, we'll both come out on the same day, and one will be um, the kaiju. So godzilla and and all that kind of stuff and the other would be like the more supernatural uh ghost ones um so i'm i'm really excited about that one and then bookwise we have um just putting the finishing touches to 
Euro Horror. And we're going to have a, the, the lovely uh, Graham Humphreys is doing the cover for that. So that should be going for design in the next month or so. And well, then, Graham was uh, uh, my guest on episode two. He was. I listened to his thing. Yes, yes. He's always entertaining. Very entertaining. And uh, and then the next book after that is going to be called. So we did we did a book a few years ago called Unsung Horrors. That's right. And it was very successful. So we did um, Son of Unsung Horrors. So this one, <laughs> unimaginably, is going to be titled Unsung Horrors Has Risen from the Grave. <laughs> um, but the difference here is we're going to take it right up into um, the 2000s as well, wow. rather than have that 79 cut-off point that we did. And then we have Masters of Terror is also waiting. And that's, that's the people on both sides of the camera involved in the history of horror movies. So, yeah, things are looking good. And um, if people need to keep, want to keep informed, we have a website, which is just uh, webelongdead.co.uk. And that has um, all our up-to-date information on there. And pl plus, we have like, a page where people do, you know, uh, reviews and articles and stuff like that, which we just haven't been able to fit into the magazine. So, yeah. Great. Uh, talking about social media. In terms of T for Terror, you can uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter, on Instagram, and you can listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. But if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever, then please, please, please give us a review because it helps us out no end. Uh, it just remains for me to say thank you, thank you, thank you to my brilliant guest this week, Eric McNaughton. Cheers, Eric. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking about giant ants. <laughs> so remember to call round next time and make yourself at home. You're probably dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.